Well, this afternoon, I know that you're going to help me play against type and remain cheerful as I share some thoughts with you about this theme of festivity and its surprising evangelical power. So let's talk a bit to begin with about what we mean by festivity. I mean, we think we know what it means, don't we? It's, it's the Christen, Christmas at Christendom event. It's the Christmas party. It's the birthday party. It's the Friday happy hour. It's the special family dinner when the kids and the grandkids are home. Well, true enough, those sorts of occasions can be festive, but depending on the circumstances, they can also be downright unfestive, right? And not just when Uncle Fred there begins tippling at the wine, right? They can be unfestive. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean is that the appearances of festivity, the smiles, the laughter, the conversation, the good food, the good, the good drink, the music, all of that is not the substance of festivity, right? So what is the mysterious substance of festivity? That's what I want to talk with you a little bit up today. And to do so, I want to tell you a winter's tale. And in fact, I want to tell you the winter's tale, William Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, a play that was first performed at the Globe Theater in London in 1611. Now, even if you're a fan of Shakespeare, you may not know The Winter's Tale. I'm, I'm passionate about Shakespeare, but I only got to know this play a couple of years ago uh, when I directed some high school students in it, and it has since then become one of my absolute favorite plays of Shakespeare. I'm just going to give you the bare bones of the plot. Right? The hero of the play is this man, King Leontes. It's a mythical world. He's the, he's the king of a kingdom known as Sicilia, right? But don't take that very seriously. I don't think it has anything to do with Sicily in Italy. And that is his queen, Queen Hermione. The inciting incident of the play is when King Leontes, unprovoked, becomes irrationally jealous of his wife. And he accuses her of having an affair with his very best friend, a friend he has known since his childhood, another king. This is King Polixenes, and his kingdom is known as Bohemia. And he's been visiting Leontes and Hermione. And Hermione being pregnant, Leontes begins to doubt whether the child is his. And he has no substance to his claim, but he, he lashes out at both of them. Right? And from that moment on, great sorrow comes on the house. That's a picture from a different production, but that's Leontes and that's Hermione, right? Polixenes flees because he gets wind that Leontes wants to poison him, so he's gone. Leontes throws Hermione in jail, right? And in Act Two, he puts her on trial, right? No evidence at all, condemns her to a life in prison 
for adultery. Soon after, Hermione dies of heartbreak, but not before giving birth to a young daughter. And her name is Perdita, right? the lost one, quite literally. Right? So this play opens up as a tragedy. Right? Leontes ultimately decides that he doesn't want to keep Perdita. He doesn't want any, any sign of his marriage to Hermione in his life. So he sends one of his retainers off to take Perdita into exile. Right? And that part of the play, interestingly, involves Shakespeare's most famous stage direction. If you haven't heard of The Winter's Tale, perhaps you've heard of this. Exit pursued by bear, right? Because <laughs> He really wrote that, exit pursued by bear. Because this poor man, Antigonus, has to take Perdita into exile, and he gets pursued by and eventually eaten by a bear. Now, this is a tragic situation. Why am I bringing it to your attention? I teach here at Christendom College a course called Ethics and Imagination. Right? It's a philosophy course but in which we study the arts and literature in particular, and thinking about how the imagery of the arts shows us, doesn't tell us, but shows us truths about the moral life. Right? So in the spirit of that course, I want to suggest to you that the image of Leontes at this point in the play, where his fear, anxiety, irrational passion has torn his marriage his family and his kingdom apart, I want to suggest to you that that's an image of where our culture is right now. Right? Now, isn't it true? Is there anyone here among us who doesn't feel a little dissettled right now? They raise their hand, right? We're trying to figure out what is going on in our culture. We're in the midst of a pandemic, our kids, by and large, are not in school. We are here at Christendom, thank God. Businesses are closing. I heard the other day one in six small businesses have closed since the beginning of the pandemic. We have a presidential election that everybody is having so much fun with, we don't want it to end. Right? <laughs> right? And more sadly, you know, we have scandal and division in the body of Christ itself. It's a lot of turmoil, right? And again, I'm suggesting to you that the Leontes is an image of our culture at this time. But never fear. This is not the end of the story of Leontes. Right? Perdita, remember, is taken into exile. That Antigonus, who got swallowed by the bear, he takes her to Bohemia, the kingdom of Leontes' friend Polixenes where she is raised by some poor shepherds, and she grows up a beautiful young lady. And in Act 4, in a country sheep-shearing festival, she becomes betrothed to this young man named Florizel. Right? Shakespeare loves to play with hidden identities. It turns out that Florizel is a prince. He is the son of 
King Polixenes of Bohemia. So the children of the two estranged kings and the two estranged kingdoms are, have met right, and become betrothed to one another. Right? Now I'm going to fast forward pretty, pretty quickly. Florizel and Perdita eventually make their way back to Sicilia. Perdita learns that she is the daughter of Leontes. She reconciles with her, reunites and reconciles with her father. Leontes blesses their marriage. Now, how has all this happening? Because in the 16 years that has passed, as Perdita has grown up, Leontes has done penance. He recognized his crime against his wife. He's devastated by what he has done. Right? And for 16 years, he has renounced himself and transformed himself. So by the time that Perdita and Florizel come back to Cecilia, he's a new man. Right? He's a changed man. And so we have the beginnings of a happy ending starting to develop. Then we come to the climax of the play. This woman, well, that's Judy Dench. But Judy Dench, in this production of The Winter's Tale, played a noble woman named Paulina. And Paulina was a good friend of the late Queen Hermione. And in Act 5 of the play, she comes to King Leontes, and she now praises him. And she says this. You probably can't see the words, but I will, I will recite, not as well as Judy Dench. She says to him, Sir, you have done enough and have performed a saint-like sorrow. No fault could you make which you have not redeemed. Indeed, paid down more penitence than done trespass. Right? You've sacrificed enough. And then she has a surprise for him. She wants him and Perdita to come to her house to see a statue that she has made had had made, of Hermione. So, Leontes and Perdita and others come, and Hermione shows them the statue of Hermione. It's amazingly lifelike. In fact, the statue even shows the wrinkles of the intervening 16 years since her death. Her, Leontes is struck by how lifelike it is. Both he and Perdita kneel down before the statue. They're so taken with it. But that's not all. Her, Paulina says, I have one more surprise for you. Actually, before we go, this is a more contemporary modern dress production, but I just wanted to show you another way in which they stage the statue of Hermione, and that's Leontes there in the nice gray suit, and Perdita in the foreground. But then Paulina says, I have one last surprise for you. But before she reveals it, she tells the assembly, it is required you do awake your faith which is crucial. And then she bids the statue of Hermione to come down from the pedestal. And to the amazement of the whole room, right, Hermione steps down. And she's alive, 
she is well. Now, Shakespeare's cagey. He doesn't make it absolutely 1,000% clear whether a miracle has just happened or whether she and Paulina have contrived to keep Hermione hidden for the past 16 years as a very long test of Leontes sincerity in his moral transformation, right? I think, if you're keeping score, that the evidence of the play suggests that it's not a genuine miracle, right? That Hermione had been hidden away, right? Hence the wrinkles, right? But in any event, that doesn't matter. The power of the imagery of Hermione stepping down from the pedestal is still there. And what does all this have to do with festivity? I want to suggest to you that the image of Hermione coming down from that pedestal and coming alive again is a picture of what true festivity is, and it's a picture of the power it has to change hearts, to change minds, to change culture. That should be still mysterious to you. Let's try to... to um, make it a little clearer. Hermione, when she comes down from, even before she comes down from the pedestal, is, I believe in Shakespeare's mind, an image of the Eucharist. And you're thinking, wait a minute, are you telling me that Shakespeare was Catholic? Hang on to that one, that'll be really fun in the Q&A, <laughs> right? Short answer, yes. She's a symbol of the Eucharist. Let's go back, take a look at the scene. When Paulina brings them into her house, she calls this room her chapel. When the statue is first revealed, as I said, Leontes and Perdita go to their knees as if before a monstrance. Again, remember, Paulina says, before she, before she calls Hermione down, she says, you must awake your faith, right? And then, I don't have a slide for these words, and then, after Hermione comes down alive, Leontes says this, Paulina bids him take Hermione's hand, and Leontes takes her hand, and it's warm. And he says, oh, she's warm. If this be magic, let it be an art lawful as eating. As if to say that Hermione coming down from the pedestal is a kind of transubstantiation. So a, a material of a statue has been transformed into a living lady, at least in the image, right? And this miracle that has happened to Leontes, it, it's like magic, but he says, hey, if it's magic, if it's an art, it should be as lawful as eating in the way that we consume the Eucharist, right? It's a Eucharistic image. So again, my suggestion to you is that this image of Perdita coming down from the pedestal is an image of perfect festivity. Why? Because it's an image of the Eucharist. The Eucharist and all that the Eucharist 
stands for is the very heart of festivity. But you knew all that before you ever entered this room. You knew all that. You knew that the new evangelization depends foremost upon the Eucharist. St. John Paul II said that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, but he also said it's the source and summit of the new evangelization. So that great feast, that great feast of the Eucharist is the key to evangelization. But what I'm most interested in talking with you about today is how we can live a kind of Eucharistic festivity outside the context of the Mass and Eucharistic adoration. That is, how can we have a festivity for the working day, right? And not just for Sundays or when we're at Mass, right? How can we live that? And I want to explore that a little bit with you today. And to do that, I'm going to call on the help of this man, who you may, who you may know, Joseph Pieper. He wrote several books that we here at Christendom are great fans of, Probably his best-known book is Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which I used just this past semester in my Philosophy of Culture class. But he also wrote another little book that is the chief inspiration for my remarks today called A Theory of Festivity, right? That's at least the subtitle. It's called In Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity, right? And in that work, Pieper unpacks the true meaning of festivity and its importance for culture. He makes the connection with the Eucharist that we have just made with the help of the Winter's Tale, but then he goes forward. And he defines festivity in this way. Festivity is essentially a beholding, a contemplation, a loving and a grateful affirmation of the goodness of all creation. That's the secret, that's the substance of it that may or may not be there when people are smiling and laughing and drinking and eating. It's fundamentally a saying yes to all of it, everything in life, everything in creation, holding back nothing. So think of a simple birthday party. Isn't that what we're doing at a birthday party? I mean, yes, there are presents, there are games. Think of a child's birthday party especially. There are presents, there are games. There's a cake, there's candles. But again, that's that's not the substance of the festivity. The substance of it is we are beholding. We are being grateful for the life of this child simply because the child exists. We're not trying to do anything. We're not trying to make anything beyond the cake. We just want to behold. We just want to contemplate. We just want to soak it up. The beauty of creation manifested in this child, right? That's the festive spirit. That's why we call a birthday a festive occasion, right? And that's what merits anything as a festive occasion. Don't want to go there quite yet. Okay. 
I want to underscore the point that we're not trying to do anything when we're being festive, right? We simply want to look physically with our eyes, but with our minds and with our hearts as well, right? Sometimes festivity, because of that, doesn't even involve a party or any outward show of celebration. You can think of, of a couple who have been married for many years, can sit together in perfect silence and just kind of soaking each other up, right? Looking at each other, and it kind of sums up the years of their marriage, all the good things, all the trials, but at the end of it, it's all good, and they want to affirm it all is good. And that can all be done in silence, right? And it's a beautiful thing, and that's a festive occasion, even though there's no party surrounding it. And so hopefully it's beginning to be clear that the appearances of festivity can be deceiving. Right? And in fact, I'm sure we've, we've had occasion to witness in our lives that sometimes someone partying really hard is not a sign of festivity at all. It's a sign of sadness, right? Joseph Pieper identifies that sadness with the age-old vice of acedia which is typically translated as sloth, right? One of the seven deadly sins, right? And what is it? It's not laziness. We often think that sloth is just laziness. But it's not that. It's more of a sadness. It's precisely a refusal to say yes to the goodness of creation, right? It's looking at the world is fundamentally hostile, as fundamentally an unwelcome place, right? something that I can't affirm as good, at least all the way through, a place where I take my pleasures as I can, but it's basically a hostile place. And isn't that the way Leontes was living in the first three acts of The Winter's Tale? Isn't that our culture? in so many ways. People regard creation as fundamentally hostile. The world, the, the, the universe isn't, isn't a welcome place. Right? We just kind of showed up here by some freak of evolution and we sort of don't fit, but we kind of just do our best and try to stay out of trouble until we die, right? That's fundamentally acedia. That's fundamentally the sadness and that's unfortunately, where we are in our culture too often. All right. I've been saying that festivity, true festivity at any rate, is culture at its highest fulfillment. So that means if we're going to change the culture, if we're going to evangelize, we need to bring festivity to the culture in order to manufacture the kind of happy ending that we see in The Winter's Tale, right? And of course, again, foremost, we want to bring the world to the Eucharist. We want to bring them to the faith. But again, the question is, how can we do that outside of the sacramental context, right? How can we do that during the working day, right? Well, I want to, to close my remarks by suggesting a few ways in which we might do that. First and foremost, I think what we need to do is to take back our attention. Right? 
because you cannot have that festive attitude of beholding, of contemplating, of being grateful for all the goodness of creation if your attention is fractured. And unfortunately in our culture, that's where our attention, I know for me, too often, that's where our attention is. There's a wonderful Netflix documentary that came out um, in 2020, maybe you've seen it, it's called The Social Dilemma. I've been talking with students here about it, and it's an expose of the social media tech companies. And it investigates and, and really reveals the way in which they, their product is designed to manipulate our attention. And in fact, I should put that more strongly, their product is our attention. That's what they go to their advertisers and sell. They're selling their ability to keep our attention on their platform. Right? So they invent lots of little gizmos and gimmicks like, you know, like buttons and little hearts and retweets and friends. None of the things I just mentioned were originally part of social media. But they discovered that if they were going to keep the eyeballs on their platform, they had to find a way to tap into our desire to be seen, be liked, right? for fame, basically. So they concocted all these things. And so, again, too often in our culture, our attention is fractured. And it's just not, not only by social media alone, it's by a sensationalist media in general, it's by popular entertainment that too often is not very nourishing. Right? And we have our head in these things. And what we need to do first and foremost in order to create festivity is to work on ourselves and take back the attention that especially technology is trying to take from us. And what happens when we do that? We create a mental, spiritual space for prayer, right? for meditation, right? for simply beholding and being grateful. And that can't help but generate joy. And I love one of, uh, one of Bishop Barron's great points is that joy is the key to evangelization. It's infectious. Everybody wants to be around someone who's joyful, and that joy comes from being festive on the working day. Okay, second point. I've been saying, though, that festivity needs a physical form, right? It, it wants to be realized in some celebration. It isn't always, and I guess it doesn't have to be, but normally it wants some physical manifestation. We want the party. Right? So we should ask ourselves, what sort of physical manifestation should our attitude, our festive attention take? And it can take myriad forms. There's not just one answer for it. But one, one particular physical form I want to call your attention to today is the fine arts. Right? Beauty, as we see it in the fine arts. And again, I'm stealing another point from Bishop Barron. This is how we can attract people to the faith. Because trying to attract people, first of all, by truth or by goodness, that is, to get into ideas first or to get into moral issues first is often, not always, but often off-putting to people. 
right? The defenses go up, right? We don't want to talk about abortion, or we don't want to talk about this hot button issue, or we don't want to talk about objective truth too much, too much, too much. But if you approach through beauty, it's less threatening, it's more attractive, right? And it can draw people in. So I think one thing I would suggest for all of us and for our culture generally is to become patrons of the arts. I mean, not necessarily literally, but in the sense that we rededicate ourselves to the arts. If, if only through a book club, if only through, you know, uh, being patron, at least of, of something local, right? Supporting the artists you know, reading poetry, reading novels. How is this going to evangelize? Again, when you share that passion, it's going to be attractive to others and draw them into friendship with you. And from there, the grace takes over. Last thing to think about. I just mentioned the fine arts, but there are a lot of other arts than the fine arts. There are, of course, also the liberal arts that we practice here at Christendom College. In those cases where you can get somebody to see the beauty, not just in a work of fine art, but the beauty in the truth, say, of a philosophical argument or a theological argument, or you can get them to think about moral goodness, that's an opportunity to draw them in to the practice that we have here at Christendom College. So the liberal arts, are a key way in which we live the festive spirit. But there are lots of other little arts that probably already make up part of your lives that are festive, and you may not have even think of them in that way. A student just did a wonderful end of semester project for me in my philosophy of culture class on the craft of dining, right? And that to me, it was just a great example of this, right? Of bringing festivity into an everyday setting. Because she said, too often in our culture, we eat, we feed ourselves, but we don't dine. The difference being, we don't sit down, we don't practice the etiquette, which makes way for the conversation, which is what we all want, right? And so she had a project with her sister of kind of throwing a dinner party where they planned the meal, sent out very formal invitations, brought people in, and they deliberately practiced how to dine. That's, a, that's exactly the sort of thing I'm thinking about here this afternoon. And of course, another great example of festivity is what we're doing now, right? Talking about the good and the true and the beautiful among friends. So I thank you for your attention here today. I would love to take any questions or comments you may have. But thank you very much. I appreciate it.